can be seated. I also want to thank uh, today of uh, acknowledging our mothers. Uh, I know there are some mothers who are visiting with their families, and we appreciate you being here also. Uh, with that being said, I think many of you know what's going on with the Supreme Court right now, and uh, I just want to ask you to pray. Uh, I know that the justices are receiving a lot of pressure right now uh, about some things in the decision that appears that they're going to be making in the summer. Uh, it'll become official, uh, but there's still a long ways to go in the process, and, and so let's just uh, take that time to pray uh, for those justices that they will remain firm in their decision that it appears they're going to be making. And so uh, we definitely would need to lift that up, the right to life movement. And so continue to pray for that. Let me give you an update on the Worship Center expansion. Uh, I know there's some of you, uh, all the information I shared last week about the expansion of this room uh, and all the different things we talked about, I know I gave you a lot of information, but I want to recap just a little bit of that information in case it got lost in everything. Uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, we will be basically taking everything out of the rooms behind that wall. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be boxing things up, getting things ready to move the kitchen and everything. And so that'll take place over the next several weeks. And then the end of May is when they're planning to bring in the demolition team to basically remove the back part of this wall here uh, and then go into the other areas to expand this where we can seat about 250 people in the room, uh, extra 250 people in the room. So that is coming, and we're looking at that starting May 31st, and then we're told, and pray about this too, that it will all be complete by the end of August. And so we're looking forward to that timeline. That's when school comes back together. It's when the Gardner-Webb students are coming back and everything. And so we're excited about that possibility. Now, during the month of July, some of you have asked, so what do we do when they start working in this room? Well, we're going to have as many times in the room as possible as far as getting together for worship uh, through the construction. But we know there's going to be about four weeks that we're not being able to meet in this room. And so pray for us. We're looking at some other options from the possibility of a tent to going into the warehouse. Having, anyway, we've got a lot going on about how to do that, okay? And so the problem with the tent is it's in the middle of July. Yeah, that's a blessing, isn't it? I'll be preaching on hell those four weeks, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I probably need, anyway, uh, come on now. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of where, where, where things are headed. Just want to let you know that. that. Also, uh, let me just say this. The cards, if you look in the back of the seats in front of you, you'll see there's a pledge card here. Uh, we encourage people to uh, uh, give towards the campaign one point. Uh, $3, 5000000 dollars what it's going to take to do everything we need to do in the room. And so if you'll look at that and just pray about how God would uh, involve you as it relates to giving towards the cause uh, of doing this. We're trying to retire this between 24 and 36 months out, get rid of that so we can move on to other things we need to address also. But there's that card in the back of the seat there in front of you. Last week, we had 47,000 pledged. The first week before I, and I, yeah, amen. And so we hope there'll be more, and we hope you and your family will pray about uh, how much to give towards that as we get ahead and knock that out. All right. I do want to thank you for being here this morning. I don't know, but I feel a little nervous up here. I, <laughs> I kind of had something come on me kind of quick here. But let me just say this. Uh, I, I told Jonathan, I said, you know something? I like your outline better than my outline, and you know I'm going to preach it better than you, so you might as well just let me have your outline. <laughs> 
Uh, pastors do talk junk to one another, but anyway, um, I, I feel very satisfied in what the Word God's given me for this morning. So uh, today we begin a new ser- sermon series, Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. And so uh, the first thing I want us to look at today is that whole idea of God's agenda. What is God's agenda? When you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, what is he really after? We're going to look at that. And Haggai chapter 1, if you'll go ahead and turn there, Haggai chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's only two chapters, has a lot to say about God's agenda. Now, when you turn there, I want you to think about this. Haggai is the second smallest book in the Old Testament. And so basically, it's a small message, but it is a very powerful message message. And so, if you will, look at the introduction. God uses the minor prophets to convey major messages to his people, not just then, but even now. Now, I want you to think about it. This is why I love God's word so much. There's not only a message for the people who hear in that day, That message also rings down through the ages, all the way to the church age in which we live today. And what is being communicated there is something that we need to take heed of. It's something that we need to listen to as it relates to what God desires for us. So the dates of the book covers really just a three-month period in 520 B.C. 520 B.C. Now, it's written to Jews who had just returned from captivity in 538 B.C. The history is important for you to understand where we are in this. So the Jews have just come back from the Babylonian captivity. If you know anything about Jewish history, you'll know that the kingdom was divided at some point. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And basically the Assyrians came down as a world empire and conquered the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom remained for a while until the Babylonians came down, and then they took over the the whole idea of what was going on in the southern kingdom. But the Babylonians didn't come down and just wipe people out. They began to transplant people. If you know anything about the Babylonians and when they became a war of power, they didn't go and wipe people out. They basically uh, moved people to different locations where they couldn't really assemble themselves again, and so that they would lose their identity as a nation and as a people. And that was the intention of the Babylonians. Well, we know many of the, of, of the, of the Jews wound up in Babylonia, and several in other areas. Some went to Egypt and several places. So basically, the captivity. There are kings who later came on the scene that allowed, beginning with Daniel, that allowed many of the Jews to come back to the promised land. Now, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. He wrote during the same period of time and basically on the same subject. But Zechariah basically covered more of what was to come for the Jews, and you can read all about that. But Haggai's message was more for that day, but it also pointed to the future. Now, the Babylonian captivity, once they began to come back, the Bible says, and it, in history, we understand that three waves came back. Ezra led a group. Nehemiah led a group to build the walls of Jerusalem. But the, before these waves, Jeroboam uh, Babel leads a group. Jerob, yes, thank you. Leads a group <laughs> who, comes, <laughs> who comes to rebuild the temple in 536 B.C., And it's estimated that 50,000 people came with him at that time. So the work on the temple begins 535 B.C. 
So they get there. They basically get where they can have a, a way to, to, to have a house for themselves. And then they begin to work on the temple. But all of a sudden, it stops. The work of the temple stops for about 15 years. And that's where we pick up the story of Haggai. Now, historically, Haggai writes, look on your outline, to encourage and to challenge the return remnant to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Doctrinally, here's what we learn. God blesses his people when they put him first. How many of you are testimony of that? You know that. Okay, And that's the message he's going to tell them. Number two, when we are in God's service, we should never grow weary while doing good, while doing what God desires. And we're going to find out that they did go we grow weary in the process. And then thirdly, God's promises for tomorrow are our hope for today. And we're going to see that play out beautifully with these people as God begins to bring words to the people. So, Let's jump right in. The outline of Haggai. The first thing we see here is the first message. And it's directed to the hands of the people. God wants them to do something. And it's really what he intended them to do all along. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now it, it says, in the second year of King Darius. Now let me clear this up. Darius is not the Darius is mentioned in Daniel. This is not the same person. That was Darius of the Medes. You ever heard of the Medes and the Persians? This is actually Darius of the Persians, okay? And so what you're seeing here is in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Jerubbabel, the son of Shethiel, governor of, of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. So who is he addressing here? First of all, Jeroboam, Babel, I'm so sorry. I'm having a mental block up here. Jeroboam is, is the governor of the region. So he's the civil leader of the, of the region, okay? But then there's the high priest who is Joshua. Now, he's not the Joshua of the conquest. This is a different Joshua. And he's speaking to them. And it says in verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not yet come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So basically, it's interesting the way God points this out. The Lord says, This people. How does he normally refer to his people? My people. He's saying, This people. These people. It's almost like when you have your kids and they act out. And one of the spouses tells the other spouse, your kids are acting out again. It's almost kind of like that. But basically, God is looking at this, and he's saying the time is not yet. Now, why would they think that? God has already said this is the time. There's a great movement to rebuild the temple. Well, they thought that because it was difficult to build the temple, that God must not be in it. Now, isn't it amazing how often we think that sometimes? We, we think, man, I tell you, if it's hard, you know, God's told me to do this, but if, if we get any kind of pushback or if it becomes difficult, it must not be of God. That's kind of like, I hate to say it, the American way of thinking how God works, isn't it? But here's what we need to understand. Back then, they kind of thought the same thing. We, know, we knew it was a task based on the history. It was a task to rebuild the temple. If you know anything about Nehemiah, you know it was a task to rebuild the walls. Do you remember? There were people coming at them. They didn't like the fact they were rebuilding the walls. And the temple was just as important to the outsiders. 
the outsiders did not want to see the Jews come in and build a temple which would restore their identity as a people. And so they were against that. And so, yes, there was opposition, but God definitely wanted them to do this. Now, look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, It is time for you yourselves to dwell in, in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins. He's basically pitching a question to them saying, hey, look at your own homes. It's, it's good. You're living good. You're living comfortably. But what about the house of God? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, now I want you to think about what he's saying here. He, he's basically saying you need to think about what you're doing. You need to consider the outcome of what could come of this. And we know that because of what he says next. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat and do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. He's basically saying, you're sitting here and you're being disobedient. And as a result of your disobedience, you're literally, as it relates to life, you're just sitting there spinning your wheels. You're basically not fulfilling my agenda. My agenda for you is to rebuild the temple. And until you get back on board with me, here's literally what he's saying. I will be working against you. Now, that's pretty tough when you hear God say that, isn't it? I, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I know of times in my life when I wasn't exactly obedient into what God's called me to do. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, there are times I felt like God was working against me. Have you ever felt that way before? You almost feel like you were kind of cut off from God's blessings because of some disobedience in your own life. I've been there. It's, it, it didn't just affect me, it affected my family. You say, oh, no, does a loving God actually operate that way? Are we not reading this? Or, or have you not lived the Christian life long enough to know that God loves you too much to keep you outside of his will? He has an agenda. He has a priority for each of us. And there's something that he knows that will bring the greatest fulfillment in life, and that is following his will, his ways, his priority, and his agenda. But the problem is many times we work off our own agenda. And basically God is saying when that happens and it contradicts what he's after, it will seem, and it is, like he's working against us. And that's exactly what we're reading here. There's never enough. He's also talking about the fact there's nothing fulfilling about the life that you're living. How many, how many of you sometimes you just feel like you are spinning your wheels? How, how many of you feel like you're just trying to get from one week to the next? You're trying to just live long enough to get to this point in your life. And if I can get to this point in your life. But did you know God has a more fulfilling agenda and plan for your life? You see, the only thing that's going to fulfill you in the deepest needs that you have is God himself. There is a void in your life that is reserved just for God. And it's not just the presence of God. It's not just God himself, but his plans for you. And until you move in that direction, life will not be as fulfilling as it possibly could be. And you say, well, does it look like it's just going to be smooth sailing once I get there? Is it absolutely not. I hate to disappoint you. Sometimes it's difficult, but God is there. And he's telling these people, listen, he's basically saying, I know you don't think the timing's right to build a temple, 
But here's the most important part about what he's saying here. But it is the right time because I say it is. And he's saying if you continue the path you're on, you'll never have anything in life that's fulfilling. But not only that, it'll appear I'm working against you. And, and actually, it says he was. So look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He says it again. Consider your ways. What's he talking about? Think about what you're doing. What the outcome could be. He says, consider that. Verse 8. And then he tells them, this is the point in which you can walk towards obedience. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. He's saying, do it for me. Go, go for it. Do what I've called you to do. And then he says this. You look for much in verse 9, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord host, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on you all the labor of your hands. He's basically saying, I'm not going to provide in the way. You won't sense my blessings in your life. Now, isn't it amazing? We don't hear a lot of that kind of preaching today. But it's in there. It's very true. God, here's the thing you got to understand how it, God wants to bless you. He does. But disobedience will always keep that from happening. And that's something we need to understand. And we see it lived out perfectly right here. Then look at verse 12. Then Jeroboam, the son of Shedetel, whatever his name is, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, got that one right, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of of the Lord their God. And as the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. That literally means they got to a place where they began to see what was going on in their lives in the, in the context of who God is. They began to see that they were cut off from their creator. They were cut off from their God. And God said, you're to be my people. But they found out. They came to that conclusion they were not obediently living before God. And they came to that. And guess where it started? It came back to the reverence and the fear of God himself. God can bestow, take these things away. Then Haggai, verse 13, the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, here it is. Once they got obedient, here's what happened. I am with you, says the Lord. How many of you love the comforts of God's word when it says basically, I am with you? I'm with you. That's a promise in God's word. But listen, here's what we need to understand. When things aren't right between you and I, God, you and I, between God, between you and I and God, who moved? We did. We moved away. And that's a picture of what we're seeing right here in this text. And then he says, verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel and the governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Desert, uh, Darius. Now, I want you to think about this. 
what in the world was the temple so important? Why was it so important? Now, some of you would say, because it was God's house. And that would be good enough, right? But the point is this. There was something else about the temple. What did it represent? The temple in that day represented a place where the glory of God could be on display before the world. That's part of the reason for the temple. It was a picture of God dwelling with his people. That God was among the people. It was also a place, because of the sacrificial system that surrounded it, it was a place of redemption and reconciliation. So would you say the temple was important in the Old Testament? Yes, it was very important. And God wanted to bring all that back to the people. And it, he wanted his people to be a testimony to the world through that temple. But then we come to a second message. And it's directed to the hearts of the people. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the, the son of... I, I, don't we know whose son it is by now? But anyway, <laughs> the, the governor of Judah, and to the Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Basically what God was doing here, he was pointing out the fact that they were discouraged by what they were building. Now think about it. Solomon's temple. What have you heard about it? One of the ancient wonders of the world, right? It was beautiful. The queen of Sheba came in and saw the riches of, uh, of Solomon and saw his palaces and saw the temple. She went away and she was blown away by it, we read in scripture. We see so many things that surround the temple and the glory of the temple. But right now they're working on a project that's not equaling that. And basically God is coming to comfort them at this point. He's basically saying it's not so much about the, the grandeur of the temple. That, that's not important right now. He's basically bringing to the idea the, important is, the poor importance is that it represents my presence, that I am truly there. And so all of a sudden we've got something happening here. He's basically saying don't be discouraged. It's not physically meeting the characteristics of the first temple. But don't be discouraged by that. He says in verse 4, You now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. What is he saying here? Don't be discouraged. You're still doing a great work. How many of you have ever been discouraged before? How many of you ever been discouraged when you thought God called you to do something and it didn't come out exactly the way you thought it should come out? You felt like something was lacking. I've been there. I think I've talked to some of you who've been there. And all of a sudden, what God is doing, God is saying, I know it doesn't seem to measure up to the first temple. But that's not why we're here. We're here for your obedience. We're here for you to do what I've assigned you to do. And what I've assigned you to do is to build the temple. He doesn't talk about all the grandeur of the last one. He's basically saying, get rid of the comparisons. You're basing the comparisons on the wrong thing. Was, it made, was the first temple made of gold and silver and all those beautiful things? Yeah, it was. But all of a sudden, we have a temple that's not necessarily made out of that. But what is God trying to say in all this? Look at verse 5 
according to the word that I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You know what he's literally saying here? Just as, just as passionate as I was about getting you out of Egypt, I'm just as passionate about you reestablishing yourself in this land. And I'm very excited and passionate about the identity of my people coming back together. How do we know that? Because it's temple talk. It's all about the temple. And God is in this. And he's basically saying, don't be discouraged. Be passionate about it. Be passionate about it. It's almost like, you give your gift, a gift to your mom or someone, and, and you, you come in there, and maybe she makes a big deal about it, and you're saying, oh, it's really not a, it wasn't my best, and I'm surprised you even want it. <laughs> you kind of been there, you know what I'm saying? And, and basically, God is saying, no, this is, this is good. This is the right thing. We're headed in the right direction. This is, this is something that can be worked with. And he's saying that, but be passionate about it. Verse, nine, verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying is what you're building has great potential. It's going to mean a whole lot more than you think it does. This is something. This is right. This is what I've called you to do. But there's something later that's going to be even greater that's going to come of this. How many of you kind of see your life that way sometimes? You're, you don't feel so good about your life. You're sitting there, and, and for some of us, it's good reason we don't feel good. Maybe that's conviction in our life. But for some of us, we are. We're, we're living the life that we feel like God wants us to live, and we feel like it's not really touching anyone. It's not amounting to anything. What he's saying here is, listen, I am doing more probably in what you can't see than what you are actually seeing. And that's a word for all of you who think, man, I've tried to put myself, there, myself out there for God, and I really want to be all God desires of me to be, but, but I feel like it's not touching anything. Well, you know what God's telling these people? He's basically talking to the same crowd. He's saying, listen, what this is going to do is going to touch many. It has great potential, and it will touch far more than you ever think it will. That's what he's saying here. Now, what's going on here? What are we seeing? Well, here it is. The temple, here's what we need to understand. It's going to be rebuilt by 516 B.C. Okay, so they get on the temple, they start working it, and they finally finish it. It's nothing like the glorious temple of Solomon. But God is saying, see this temple as a reminder of God's intended purposes. Okay, so basically he's pointing them somewhere else. Now, God is moving their attention basically to the future. And there's several things that we can look at this passage at its face value and say, okay, what does he mean here? Well, some people could read it at its face value and think, oh, this is talking about the temple Herod the Great's going to build. Did you know he's going to build a mighty temple? 80 years to construct? It will become an ancient wonder of the world in that day. And all of a sudden, you've got Solomon's temple, you've got this temple, and then you've got Herod the Great's temple. 
And so some people could say, you know something? It's talking about Herod the Great. He's going to come on in another 450 years. He's going to build this great temple. They're building the foundations and what it could become. He's going to see it out. Well, other people say, no, it's not necessarily that. Some people were saying, maybe this is a picture of Jesus. Did Jesus become the embodiment of the temple when he came? Yes, he did. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, there's really no need for a temple, if you think about it. And so he becomes the embodiment of it of that. Then in the New Testament, guess who else is called the temple? We're called the temple, the temple of God. Why? Because he takes up residence in us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so all of a sudden, there's all these ideas that could be out there. And then guess what? There's another temple that's going to be built in the future, the tribulation temple. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about the tribulation period and, and how the Antichrist is going to make a, 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 a special covenant with the people of Israel. They're going to rebuild their temple. He's going to defile the temple. And, and all of a sudden, it's going to be chaos once again. And, and we see all these things about these temples, and then there's another temple that's going to be built. For those of you who know your prophecy, the millennial temple is going to be built. But... There's ideas about what that really is. Let me just say this. The Millennial Temple, this is this guy's version of it, I don't think is actually a temple in and of itself. I think it's actually a picture of Jesus Christ because he is the embodiment of what the temple stood for. He is there. It's a picture of him. He is the temple of God. But what is he saying here? What could it? Well, the, the verse gives us another clue. Look at verse 9. The glory of this latter temple, I believe it's not talking about Herod's temple. I don't believe it's definitely talking about the tribulation temple. I think it's talking about the millennial temple. Here's what he says. He says, this temple, the former, says the Lord, and in this place, what does he say he's going to give? Peace. When's peace coming to the nation of Israel? not in this part of history. It's not going, it didn't happen after that for a brief moment, maybe, but guess who was still in charge? The Roman Empire? Still no peace when you think about it. All of a sudden, is there peace there now? No, there's no peace there now, and there's no temple there now either. It's not going to happen during the tribulation period. So when is peace going to surround our idea and concept of the temple, which we believe is Jesus, and them living in peace? the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus with us ruling and reigning with him. I believe that is the clue we need to understand what temple he's talking about. But I want you to think about the people. Did they fully understand it all? They didn't understand what that meant. They hadn't even seen, they hadn't even seen how it's going to show up with Jesus. They, did, they had no clue that the individuals who had a faith in God, who followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, are going to be called the temple. They didn't understand all that concept, but they didn't understand it. But yet, guess what? He was still using it as a motivation to say, here it is right here. This here represents a lot. This is really a picture of something that is to come. There's a promise that's out there that should bring you hope today. A promise out there that should bring you hope today. How many of you thank God for his promises? Did you know many of you, I know, I know this because I've talked to you, that many of you are holding on the promises of tomorrow because today is tough. It's tough. How many of you would agree with that? It's tough sometimes. Life gets really tough. And sometimes the only thing we can hold on to 
is the future, the future promises, the promises of tomorrow that give us hope for today. And you see, that's what he's doing to these people here. It's still difficult to build the temple. They still have a long ways to go. There's still going to be riots and all these different things that are going to come soon after this. But God says, you do it. You do it. And here's why you need to do it. Because of the promises of tomorrow. You're building on that. It's a beautiful picture. A third message is directed to the heads of the people. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite get through here, did I? Let me, let me, let me back up. Now, let's look at what's happening here. Yeah, he's pitching it towards the heads of the people. So that's the third, the third message, okay? Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying... Now, here's what he's doing. The prophet now is going to the priest. The temple's been completed, okay? And, and, and so he goes to them, and he's making sure... That everything is right in the temple. Now, how many of you know the temple is more than just a building? How many of you know that the church is more than just a building? It's about the people who meet in the building. It's about the hearts of the people in the building. And so basically what he's getting ready to do, he's basically challenging the priest to understand that it's not just a building in its completion that brings the presence of God. It's more than that. Look at verse 12. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or if any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. He's basically setting up the argument, basically, hey, what makes something holy? Is there something we can do? Is there this thing, this, this uh, tra tradition that we can hold, or this or whatever? No, no, he's saying, they said no. And then Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of those of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. What he was trying to get them to understand is what defiles people and what doesn't defile people. That's the big picture of what he's trying to say. Now, you could go back to the law and break all this down. I'm not going to get to that today. But the point of what he was trying to say is it's not just the temples in place. Is, is the hearts of the people in place? Are their minds in the right place? So he's basically sharing that with us. Now look at what he says next. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. He's basically saying it's more than just establishing a temple we got to understand the hearts of the people. I want to pitch something to you for you to consider, and that's what he's telling them. He's basically saying, it's time to get right before God before you can really truly come before God. Just because you have a building doesn't mean that. you got to be right with God. Verse 15, and now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vats, vat to draw out uh, 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with, blind and mil with blight and mildew and hell in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, 
from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the temple, that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day forward, I will bless you. Somewhere in this conversation, they went from not being right with God to not being on God's agenda to not fulfilling the priority of God to being with God. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And not only am I going to be with you, I'm going to bless you as a result. And again, when he talks about the seeds in verse 19, he's talking about what your small accomplishment of obedience is, is setting the motion for something that is to come. And that's what we're seeing here. Next, verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Jerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. Everyone by the word of his brother. Everyone by the sword of his brother. What is he talking about here? It's a picture of the Battle of Armageddon. How many of you have heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Now, really, is it more than just the Battle of Armageddon he's talking about? It is. Here's what he's really saying. He's really saying that right now you're living during the time of the Gentiles. Okay? The time of the Gentiles. How do we know he's saying you're living in the time of the Gentiles? Because when he makes reference to where they are in history, he's not talking about Jewish kings, is he? He's talking about the, the pagan kings. He's talking about the Gentile kings. But he's basically saying one day it's going to get back when the time of the Gentiles is going to end and I'm going to usher in the time of my people once again. That is the promise. So these people who were discouraged, who, who, only had, who basically wanted to please God with their obedience, but yet they were discouraged, he was saying, hey, there's more to come. You're building on something here. You're building on something that's going to become great. Matter of fact, if you're discouraged today, just trust the promises for tomorrow. I will come through. I will do what I say I'm going to do. And so we see this picture here. Verse 23, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shedetel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. That last verse is very important when you come to prophecy and how God deals with covenants. Because what he's saying here, a signet ring is basically a mark of royalty. It's a mark of royalty. Zerubbabel, guess what? You know whose lineage he follows? King David. If you go back and study the genealogies, you'll find he's a direct descendant of King David. Did God make a covenant with David? He said the Messiah basically, in a nutshell, the Messiah is going to rule from your throne. Isn't that pretty exciting? And so basically he's saying, Zerubbabel, you're included in this covenant. This covenant I made with David is going to pass through you to the Messiah. And one day when that peace comes, when it's all said and done, and it's great, and I'm going to be leading the people, and I'm over this, this is your day of hope. You will be my people once again, and there will be peace. That was a powerful message for them at that time. So what can we take from this? 
The major message, look on your outline. We should seek to build God's kingdom rather than our own. You, you see, so many times, and, and I'm guilty of this. I have to be careful with this. So many times we think about our agendas. We think about our plans. Let, let me ask you a quick question real quick. And you, some of you know what I'm talking about. How many of you are big-time planners? How many of you like to plan things out? How many of you mess around with spreadsheets to let you know where you, Y'all not going to admit this? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that word. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm a planner. I mean, my wife, I mean, it's like, oh, you're not going to pull out your spreadsheets. Yes, I am, and we're going to be excited about it, you know? But the point is, thinking that way, and even as I've led the church, it's one of those things where I have to take a step back, and I got to say, God, you know, you know my tendencies. My tendencies are to plan, 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 plan. But I want you to know this means nothing unless you're in it. <laughs> And so, God, where, we're going, where I'm leading wrong, where I'm going wrong, I need to know. But you know something? Has it always been easy leading a church? And has it always been easy in the life you live to live the life God? No, sometimes, how many of you agree, it's very difficult. There are challenges beyond anything we could ever imagine. You know what I take from this story? What I take from this story is this. God wants my obedience it may bring discouragement in my life, but you know what I found out in this story? He'll encourage me in the, in, the, in the discouragement as long as I'm continuing to follow his agenda and his will for my life. And, and you know what else I learned about this in this story? I learned that, 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 yes, that today may have its troubles, but tomorrow has its promises. And that's what we need. That's what we mean. Look here. As the followers of Jesus, we should not look for the good old days, for the best is yet to come. Sometimes what's back there may not even be the bad. It may be what we consider the good old days. But guess what? He's saying, oh, there's going to be some better days ahead. And how far does he carry them? He carries them all the way to the end, doesn't he? To look ahead. To look to eternity. So I want to close with this thought. Jesus said this, most powerful message that's ever been preached, Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Follow his righteousness, not your own righteousness. Follow his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Do you know what that was, context that was written in? You who think you need clothing, you who think you need food, water, and all that. He's basically saying you put him as the agenda and he will bless you. He'll provide for those things. And not only will he provide for those things, he'll, he'll give you hope in those things. He'll give you hope when you need hope in those things. So this verse implies both priority and agenda. Listen to this. As I said before, the temple of the Old Testament was a building. But the temple of the New Testament is not only the Lord Jesus Christ. It's us also. So I want you to think about that. When they were so intent on building the temple and they didn't feel like it measured up, guess what? You're the temple of God. But some of us, don't we feel like we don't measure up? Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? When God just basically says, hey, just be obedient. Just be obedient. And I'll do things in and through you like you've never seen before. That's what he's given us. And that's the message we can find here. So the question is not so much, God what is your will for my life? Instead, it is God, what is your will, and how can I give my life to it? Think about that. That's a big difference. So what is God's will? He tells us in his word. 
First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord, God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but is for all to come to repentance. Jesus said this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is God's agenda. This is his priority. And the temple that you are, the Holy Spirit lives within you, is to fulfill the, the, the agenda and the priority. Not just you as an individual, but when we come together as the church, the local church, that we are fulfilling that ourselves. And if we're not, let's just shut the doors. Shut the doors. Because that is his priority. That is his agenda. He wants us to build the kingdom of God. Build his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, we know that there's so much that is probably on our minds as we walk through this door, these doors this morning. But Father, I just pray that when we leave here that we can be encouraged by this minor prophet. Father, for that one that's sitting here today, maybe they think that their life is not amounting to much, but they're in your word. They pray. They come to church. They, they try to hear from you, Father. But they feel like they just not quite there. Father, help them to be encouraged by just being obedient to what you call them to, Father. And Lord, one day, I believe for many of us, only heaven will reveal how you truly used us. Father, for that one that's sitting here today that's discouraged and feels unfulfilled in life and feels like they're sitting there spinning their wheels, Father, I pray that, that they will do exactly what God said, to consider their ways, to evaluate where they are, and Father, if they're not faithfully following you, help them to understand that life will never be right until they do. Life will never be fulfilling until they do. Your blessings will not fall upon them until they do. And then Father, for that one that may be here today, that maybe they're coming in here and they have a heavy heart. They're, they're discouraged, they're hurting. There's just something that's bigger than they are in their life right now. Just as Haggai, just as your word came through Haggai, Lord, help them to trust in the promises of tomorrow for that in which they find themselves today. Father, we know you're perfectly capable. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing with us?